once again we'll be in Mark's Gospel, and we moved on to chapter 12 tonight. Title of the sermon is What God is Like. And we'll start reading in Mark 12, beginning in verse 1. And it says, He began to speak unto them by parables. A certain man planted a vineyard and set an hedge about it, and digged a place for the wine vat, and built a tower, and let it out to husbandmen, and went into a far country. And at the season he sent to the husbandman a servant that he might receive from the husbandman of the fruit of the vineyard. And they caught him and beat him and sent him away empty. And again he sent unto them another servant. And in him they cast stones and wounded him in the head and sent him shamefully handled. And again he sent another and him they killed and many others, beating some and killing some. And having yet therefore one son, his well-beloved, he sent him also last unto them, saying, Well, they will reverence my son. But those husbandmen said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance shall be ours. And they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. What shall therefore the Lord of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the husbandmen and will give the vineyard unto others. And have you not read this scripture, the stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they sought to lay hold on him, but feared the people, for they knew that he had spoken the parable against them, and they left him and went their way. Let's pray. Father, I just ask you, Lord, that once again you'll glorify your son Jesus through your word. And bless this word to our hearts, Lord, this eternal word uh, that gives us life and hope and instruction and righteousness. And we thank you that you'll do that for us tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So just to give the context real quick, the cultural context here is a landlord back in that day having his land worked by tenant farmers was that was a common practice. In fact, we have that going on in Shelby County. That's still going on up to this time. So, you know, sometimes the landowners, they might abuse and take advantage of their tenants. But many times the deal worked out and it was profitable to both of them. So the thing is, though, everybody that would have heard this parable, Jesus is right back to bringing something that all the common people, everybody would have understood what he was talking about. That's the cultural context to give the context of this text that we just read. So listen, Jesus had just begun to have direct confrontation with the Pharisees and the religious leaders in Jerusalem. The chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees. And we see that if you just go back to Mark 11 and verses 17 and 18. Look what it says. It says, And he taught Jesus, saying unto them, Is it not written, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer? He says, But you have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it, and they sought how they might destroy him. For they feared because all the people were astonished at his doctrine. So they're already looking for ways, and they had determined they're going to destroy him. The only thing that kept them from it is they feared the people because they lived on their praise, and they lived on their money, and they lived on taking advantage of the people. It didn't just start here. If you remember way back, way back many weeks ago in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, When Jesus healed the man with the withered hand, he had the nerve to do it in the synagogue, 
on the Sabbath day and in front of the Pharisees with them watching. And they're looking to see whether he'd heal that man or not. Not so they could rejoice when he was healed, but they wanted to have something to accuse him of, didn't they? And Jesus, in the wisdom of God, confronted their hypocrisy and he asked him, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath day or to do evil, to save life or to kill? And they couldn't answer that. Because God's wisdom just shuts mouths. And it says they held their peace when he said that to them. And it said that Jesus, after that happened, it says he's looking around on them with anger. It says he's grieved with the hardness of their heart. That they are that legalistic, that hard-hearted, not to want to see this poor man healed. And he goes on and heals him, restores the man's hand. And this is what we read there. It says the Pharisees, after they saw that, it says they went forth and immediately they took counsel with the Herodians. They weren't even buddies with the Herodians, but they're partners with them now. Took counsel with the Herodians against him, Jesus. And it said the same thing we read back in Mark 11, that they might destroy him. And so from right then, almost the beginning of his ministry on, they are just, that's all they want to do is destroy this man because he's getting in their way. So you go back, if you look in Mark eleven twenty eight, 28, we talked about this a few weeks back, and it says they question Jesus about where his authority comes from. And look what it says there in Mark eleven twenty eight. 28. It says, and they say unto him, by what authority do you these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? The reason they're saying that is like you come riding into town like you're the king that's been prophesied of, all these people shouting your praise. You come in the temple, you clear out all the money changers and animals, you just got rid of our living. This is how we were extorting people. Who do you think you are? In essence is what they're asking them. Who do you think you are? You know, in a, in a superficial reading, it doesn't seem like Jesus answered it, but he really did. He answered their question about whose authority and where he got his authority, where it came from. He answered them twice. In reality, because the first, he makes a direct link between him and John the Baptist. They knew what he was saying. But they weren't going to answer that because they feared the people again. They weren't going to talk down John, but they didn't count John as anyone, did he? Because they didn't respect him. They didn't go get, get baptized from him. And here they knew when he gave this parable to him that when he uses the language of a son, look in verse 6. It says, having yet therefore one son, his well-beloved, he sent him also last unto them, saying, they will reverence my son. And they knew the son spoke of the coming Messiah, and the coming Messiah had the authority from heaven. I'm answering your question in this parable. I got my authority from heaven. It came from God. God is the one that gave me this authority. And they weren't in the dark on what he was saying. He's answered their question because look at verse 12, the very last verse we read. It said, they sought to lay a hold on him, but feared the people. They're always fearing the people. (laughs) And look what it says, though, for they knew that he had spoken the parable against him. They knew what he was talking about. Generally, parables were like only open to the regenerate. This time, the unregenerate are understanding what he's saying, clearly understanding what he's saying. So listen, this long-standing desire of the Pharisees to destroy Jesus, the rest of Mark is going to enact out this parable we just read. The rest of it is going to be the way they destroy this man, the Son of God. 
because they begin through the rest of chapter 12. Okay, they say we're going to ask him questions that are going to disgrace him and humiliate him in front of the crowds. But instead, Jesus gives answers to every one of them and shuts them up. And so that doesn't work. And so the next thing they resort to in chapter 14 is they use the cover of darkness and Judas and they arrest him by night. But they're going to destroy him. And that's like I'm saying, what he says here in his parable is acted out in the rest of the gospel of Mark, which we'll be looking at. So you think about it, though. Jesus is here. He's speaking of his own death. that's only a few days away. I mean, this is the week, his last week of his life on earth, so to speak, his human life like that. And he is fully aware and fully in control of what's going to happen to him. But the thing is, the pressure mounts, doesn't it? He knows what's happening. He set his face like a flint. He's going to do God's will. And we still have, though, what coming up? The garden where he has to wrestle with what's getting ready to happen to him. It's a major thing. But who's this text addressed to? Who's this chapter 12? Who's he talking to? Look in verse 12. It says, for they. Who is the they? It is the one, the them in chapter 1. He began to speak unto them by parables. Well, who is the them? It is the they of 1133. They answered and said unto Jesus, we cannot tell. And that is referring to verse 27. There came to him the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders in 1127. That is who he's directly talking to. That is who he's talking to there. They're the husbandmen. They're the ones who are in charge of the vineyard, and one day they will be destroyed. They're out to destroy Jesus, but it says one day they will be destroyed and replaced. But I believe this also has a message for all of us here, because this message is going to tell us what God is like, and also some of what we are like. So we look in verse 1, and we see here that God is generous. And he began to speak unto them in parables, verse 1, chapter 12, a certain man planted a vineyard and set a hedge about it and digged the place for the wine vat and built a tower and let it out to the husbandman and went into a far country. So he's speaking to the Pharisees. And what were the Pharisees? They were masters of the Old Testament. They knew that Old Testament forwards and backwards. So they may not have understood every verse, and they may not have properly interpreted every verse, which they didn't, we know that, but they were surely familiar with all of them. And the language he's using here to begin this parable, this description, it would have immediately brought into their minds Isaiah 5. And so if you would put something there, Mark, and turn back to Isaiah 5. So we're saying God is generous, and this is where we'll see it. So look at how similar Isaiah 5, verses 1 to 7, is to what we just read. Isaiah chapter 5. And Isaiah writes, beginning in verse 1, he says, Now I will sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it and also made a wine press there. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes and it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge you, I pray you, between me and my vineyard. 
What could have been done more to my vineyard than I have not done unto it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, it brought forth wild grapes. And now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up, and break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down, and I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned nor digged, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, but behold, oppression, for righteousness, but behold, a cry. But look at the beginning when it talks about how he planted and set up this vineyard here. All the trouble and the care that he went to because he spared no expense. Look in verse 1. What does it say there at the end of verse 1? He has a vineyard, and where is that vineyard planted? Not in barren land, but in the best land available. It says a very fruitful hill, or one translation says a rich and fertile hill. He chose the best land to put his vineyard in. And look at verse 2. What did he do? It says he fenced it. He put protection around it to keep the animals away and intruders. And also it says he gathered out the stones thereof, took every stone out. Anything that would hinder the growth of his vineyard, he took out of there. I mean, that would have been a lot of trouble, wouldn't it? And also look there, what kind of vine did he use? It says he planted it with the choicest vine, a superior vine, a valuable vine, the best vine that he possibly could have picked. I mean, he spared no expense. He's generous. He put a tower and a wine press in it. He lavished on that vineyard, which we know is the nation of Israel, everything it would need for lush grapes. That's what it says in verse 4. Look in verse 4. It says, look what he says. He says, what could have been done more to my vineyard than I have not done to it? What more, he says, could be done? He was generous, wasn't he? Abundantly generous. And I'm saying we talked about this Sunday. I'm going to talk a little bit more, but it speaks to the goodness of God, the generosity of God to his vineyard, doesn't it? And so where do we see that at? I mean, we could go clear back to the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verse 31. And God saw, it says, everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Now, it doesn't just say his creation was good. It says it was very good, the best that could be created. That's the way this world was made originally. Even though through the fall, we got mosquitoes and all kinds of stuff that bug us. I mean, you go on about that. But hey, there is still beauty, variety, things that we can still enjoy despite the fall. Isn't that true? The variety in creation. I took Jake's boy and my boy and another neighbor boy to the Creation Museum not too long ago. And... They got this one room. If the kids hadn't run in there, I would have never gone in there because all it was full of was these displays of all these bugs. And they went in there. I mean, typically I'd be like, I don't want to look at a bunch of bugs. But here they are. They got to go through and look at them all. And there's all these beetles. I didn't know there's all these beetles and varieties of beetles. I mean, it's like unbelievable. The colors on them and the decorations, everything. They got butterflies, stick insects. You wouldn't believe how many different kinds of stick insects they are. But that's what God has given us, a whole room devoted to bugs. But it's part of God's creation. Not that long ago, my family, we went to the Smithsonian Natural History Museum in D.C. 
And when you first go in there, that's another place. I'm like, I don't know, it's going to be all about evolution. Well, it is upstairs, but on the first floor when you walk in there, they've got over 200 mammals on display. And they are the actual mammals. They're not some, something they put together. I mean, they're killed somehow and stuffed. Over 200 mammals. And I mean, the variety, that was just amazing to see what was there. Everything from a white rhinoceros to a short-beaked echidna. What's an echidna? It's an egg-laying mammal. Now, my son John probably could have told you that. I mean, he remembers all that kind of stuff. But just think, I mean, all the variety of the mammals, the beauty of that for us to enjoy, saying God has been generous. And what about the food we eat? So God could have just given us something, a food that would have sustained us, and it could have been as blah and bland as mashed potatoes. But instead, what's he done? He's given us steak, pork chops, chicken, and whatever you else you like to eat. Tanner told me about some guy that'll eat possum. I mean, whatever. Whatever your taste is, there's something out there, right? And to go with that, we got peas, carrots, corn, and green beans, and on and on and on with whatever the vegetable you like, you know, maybe Brussels sprouts or whatever. And for dessert, he's given us all kinds of fruit, apples, grapes, peaches, watermelon, and on and on it goes. But just think about how generous God was in doing that and caring about us with all of what he gave us in creation. And then you look at your family. That's another thing. The variety in our families. And no two kids are alike. Anybody that has kids knows that. They're all different in different ways. Yet we can work together as unity. He's given it to bless us. We have friends, varieties of friends that you get along with in different ways. And all of that is the blessing that God has given it. And so when you look at creation, you have to think God would be saying, what more could I have done? The mountains, the valleys, the ocean, all the different varieties of trees, flowers, beautiful different kinds of flowers, birds outside my backyard singing in the morning. What more could I have done, God would say, to bless mankind, this creation that he's given us? That's nature. But what about spiritually? How has God blessed us spiritually? Ephesians 1 says that God has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, hasn't he? He's lavished on us that. So look what he's done for us as Christians. He's given us new hearts, changed our hearts. That's no small thing. And then he's filled us with his Holy Spirit. And by that, I mean, he put his power in us. It says in 2 Corinthians, he lives in us. He walks in us. God Almighty has done that. What more could he have done? Well, he did a lot more than that. Made us his temple. Given the church gifts like Caleb was talking about. I mean, that should be seen here. I mean, that's what he's promised us in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, isn't it? But healing, miracles, prophecy... And what about his word? How would we know about the God of heaven? How would we know about the way to salvation? Because people that reject this, they have no clue. And that's where you get all these religions that spring up. They're clueless. But he's given us his word so we can know him, know about ourselves, know what we need to do to get back right with him. And that's a blessing, isn't it? And then he's given us fellowship, hasn't he? So we have saints around that can encourage us because... Would you like to be on an island by yourself with your Bible and nobody to encourage you at times? I mean, we all need that, don't we? Fellowship and encouragement and somebody to every now and then say you're heading down the wrong way. You need to 
Watch yourself there. That's what we need. But that's what God has done. What more could have been done than I have done? So that's my first point there. God is generous to us in so many ways. That's what we have in verse 1. And the second thing we see in verse 2 is that man is responsible. Chapter 12, verse 2, it says, And at the season he sent to the husbandman a servant that he might receive from the husbandman of the fruit of the vineyard. So it says it was in the season, in the proper season. So God is not demanding. The landlord wasn't demanding. It takes four years to grow grapes. So he isn't there demanding things that they haven't had time to produce. So he, at the proper season, it says, he sent a servant that he might receive some of the fruit. And that's not an unreasonable request, is it? He owned the vineyard. He'd made a deal. He was entitled to his share, isn't he? So God's blessed us in a lot of ways, and isn't he entitled to his share? So one way we can look at that is he blesses us, doesn't he, financially, and he requires us to give a portion back to him, either through offerings or just helping somebody out. It doesn't always have to be something you stick in the box. And sometimes don't we tend to think that God's asking a lot? You know, I got a lot of bills, Lord. I mean, I got my rent coming up. I'm behind on whatever all else. And to give to you is really going to put a pinch on me. And I think those tenant farmers probably thought that. Man, he's asking a lot. Man, we worked real hard. He didn't do anything. He's just sending some guy and wanting his money. Now we're not going to give him anything. That's maybe what they thought. But here's the promise. And remember, like with Achan, here's what we need to remember as far as giving goes, no matter who we're giving to. And the promise is, if we give to God and others, what does he promise? He says he'll give us back. He says, you lend to the poor, you're lending to the Lord. And he says he'll give us back and that much more, won't he? He's never going to leave us poor because we're generous. Luke 6, 38 says this, Give, and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down and shaken together and running over, shall men give into your bosom. Isn't that the way it works? So there's a well-known man that was wealthy and gave away a lot of his wealth. And someone asked him one time, how is it that you give away so much and still have so much left? And his answer was, well, I suppose it's like this. I shovel out and God shovels in and he has a bigger shovel than I do. <laughs> and that's the way it is, isn't it? We just got to trust him. I also think this fruit that he's requiring here, and this is part of giving, but the fruit he's requiring of us is what? He's wanting our obedience. Isn't that what God wants from us? We sing this song. It's a great song, Jeremiah 7, 23. But this thing commanded I them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. And walk ye in all the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well with you. That's what God asks. And sometimes doesn't that sound like an impossible command? It's a beautiful song, but it seems like it's an impossible command to walk in all the ways that God commands. But here's what we need to understand, a changed heart. If you really have a changed heart, part of that changed heart is that will be your desire. Even if you fall short, your desire is going to be to obey the Lord because that's the way you show that you love him. So people all the time, oh, that guy loves the Lord or I love the Lord. Somebody can say whatever they want to. But how do you know whether somebody really loves the Lord, including us? We have to ask ourselves that. 
is are we obeying him? Or do we desire to walk in obedience? 1 John 5, 3 says, for this is the love of God. It's not just because you say, I love the Lord and all this religious talk and all that other. That's not how you know. 1 John 5, 3 says, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And he goes on to say, and his commandments are not grievous. And that word grievous means burdensome. Something that weighs you down, that just seems severe. He says His commandments aren't that way. His commandments are this weight that are on you that you just can barely sustain and carry. Yesterday I had to take my air compressor, and it's not so much it's heavy, it is heavy. But the biggest problem with it is just awkward the way you have to carry the thing. And I had to carry that thing about 50 yards. And I'm saying, I'm carrying this, and I'm getting towards a certain spot. But I can't carry it. It's a burden too big. I had to put it down and just stand there for a second and pick it back up. And he's saying, look, God's commandments aren't like that. They're not like some burden that you just have to put down. A burden that you can barely endure. A burden that you can't just wait to drop. Because what did Jesus say? So John says commandments aren't grievous. And Jesus says what? He says, my yoke is easy. And he says, my burden. He didn't say you don't have one. But he says, if your heart's right with me, he says, my burden is light. That's what our Lord said. That's the way it is. So this fruit, I like with one man I read said, David Garland. What is it then that God requires of us? What is it he's looking for? What is it that's going to keep the vineyard from being judged? The house of Israel, us, the house of Shelbyville, people that are here. And one thing he says is you can see it all right here. It's right here in Mark. Remember Mark eleven twenty five. What did he say one of the requirements is to get our prayers heard? We've got to be willing to forgive. That's one thing. We have to be a forgiving people. And he also said, we just reread it a little bit ago, what is this house supposed to be? It's supposed to be a place of true worship. It's supposed to be a place of prayer for all nations. We shouldn't let anybody out. Well, we don't want you in here or treat them like we don't want them in here. He said that should be a house of all nations. He also tells us that the fruit he's looking for is we need to render unto God the things that are God's. In chapter 12, look in verse 17. It's in that same chapter. They ask him that tax question, and Jesus answered in verse 17. He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but what are we supposed to give God? To God the things that are God's. And what is it that God wants? He wants our total devotion, doesn't he? Isn't that what he asked for? He asked for our total devotion. And also, what else does God require? That we're to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And after that, our neighbor as ourselves. So he says that over in chapter 12, verses 30 and 31. He says, you shall love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. Verse 31, the second is like it. Namely this, you shall love thy neighbor as thyself. And Jesus says there's none other commandment greater than these. So what does God expect from his vineyard, from his people, from me and you? He wants us to be accepting, prayerful, forgiving, devoted, and in loving fellowship. And all of that is built on what? Not in our strength, not because we're trying real hard. It's built on the Lord Jesus Christ living in us through his spirit. That's what happens. And here's the thing we need to remember. Oh, yeah, we've heard all that before. If we don't meet those requirements, 
That's what he's asking from us. That's the obedience he requires. We're in danger, aren't we? Isn't that what Israel wasn't doing? They weren't doing those things. And he says, I'm going to destroy you, the vine and the ones taking care of it. And that's how serious it is. He's going to hold us accountable. So in Luke 13, 7, it said, A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon and found none. And then he said unto the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I'm finding none. Cut it down. Why cumbereth the ground? I mean, what's he saying there? He's saying, I'm going to come. And he comes not just once. He comes three years and finds nothing. And eventually what happens? He's like, hey, I'm holding you accountable. There's no fruit. You're not showing fruit in any way. Get it out of the way. We'll put something more profitable in there. That's what he did to Israel. I'm going to cut you off temporarily. I'm going to replace you. Why cumbereth the ground? Daniel Webster, Noah Webster wrote the dictionary, but Daniel Webster was, in his day, he was a brilliant lawyer, he was a senator, he was Secretary of the United States at one point, but he was also a devout Christian man. One time this Unitarian asked Webster, he said, how can a man of your brilliance believe in the Trinity? How can anybody as smart as you believe in the Trinity? And his answer was, well, I believe because it's in the Bible, though I don't understand the arithmetic of heaven. That shows how brilliant he is, but that shows how he's devoted to the Lord. Doesn't care how much of an idiot he looks like. I don't understand the arithmetic of heaven. No one does. But I believe that. But what else happened is someone else asked him another question. So I'm saying, God, we're responsible. He holds us accountable. Someone else asked him, what is the greatest thought that has ever passed through your head? Now, this guy's a senator, ran for president. He was secretary of the state. Now, you wouldn't think he'd give this answer. You know what his answer was? His answer was the greatest thought that ever passed through his head, he said, was my accountability to God. That's an answer, isn't it? That's something to think about, isn't it? So we're all responsible. A third thing we see here in verses 2 to 6 is, so we're saying, what is God like? We've talked about he's generous. And the second thing we see here is that God is long-suffering, beginning in verse 2. And it says, at that season, he sent to the husbandman a servant that he might receive from the husbandman of the fruit of the vineyard. They caught him, beat him, sent him away empty. And again, he sent unto them another servant. And in him, they cast stones, wounded him in the head, and sent him away shamefully handled. And again, he sent another And him they killed, and many others, beating some, killing some. Having yet therefore one son, his well-beloved, he sent him also last unto them, saying, They will reverence my son. So the owner of this vineyard, he is continually sending servants to get what is due him. And the first they beat him and send him back empty-handed. He doesn't have a thing. The second they hit him on the head, they throw rocks. One hits him in the head, wounds him. They said, he goes back shamefully treated. He doesn't have anything either. And the third they killed. You think about it. People had to be listening to this in Israel. Nobody would treat a landlord like that, an owner of the property. Nobody would. They got to be thinking, what's the deal with this? Why isn't this guy taking care of this? But he didn't just stop with those three. It says in the Word, he sent many others, 
kept sending them to him. So we know that those servants, it refers to the prophets, because the prophets are called servants of God many times in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 7.25 says, The Lord said this, Since the day that your fathers came forth out of the land of Egypt unto this day, he says, I have even sent unto you all my servants, the prophets, daily rising up early and sending them. So how did Israel treat the prophets, the anointed men that God sent to them out of his love, out of his patience, out of his concern? They beat Jeremiah. They killed Isaiah. It said that he was sawed in half. They stoned Zechariah in the temple. Yet God in his patience, despite how his servants were treated, he kept sending them. That shows God's patience and his love. Like I said, no landlord would have put up with that back then. Not like the Lord did. And not only that, but finally, treats all his servants, his prophets that way. Finally, he says, it says he sent his son, not just any son, his well-beloved. And it's similar to the language to Jacob's when he sent what was called his most beloved son, Joseph, to his brethren to see how they're doing. We have to ask, do we really understand how gracious and long-suffering God was in sending His beloved Son to this earth? Do we really understand that? Not only to this nation, Israel, His people, that continually mistreated the prophets that He sent, some they beat, some they killed, and they're, all they're doing is they're pleading with these people, repent, before it's too late, turn back to God. It's not like they're giving them some kind of message they don't need to hear. They're saying what they need to hear. God doesn't want to destroy them. He didn't want to take Israel out of the land He had given them. But it just isn't them. It's you and I, isn't it? You and I. And how many times, I could speak for myself, how many times did I ignore the gospel that I would hear on the radio, on TV, through local pastors, through street preachers, people I heard on campus, right? Through just reading the Bible, through Christians that I knew. How many times did I hear that and I could have cared less? I didn't do anything about it. So I don't know about you, but I was just a wicked sinner that didn't care about God. And yet, just like Israel, it says this, yet God commended his love toward us in that he didn't wait till we were good enough, did he, to come to us with salvation? He says, while we were yet sinners, while we were yet sinners, rebels, hating him, that's when Christ died for us. And look, in my own life, God was so patient and still is with all of us, isn't he? I mean, any sin we commit, if we got what we deserved, it, <laughs> it would be death. That God is so long-suffering with all of us that way. So the owner of the vineyard sent his own son last. And he said this. He says, well, surely, surely they'll reverence my son. Surely they'll respect him, respect my son. You know, they've got to see that he's got special status. He's not like the prophets. He's above the prophets. And let me ask you, what was there about Jesus that was not to respect or reverence? What was there about him that they wouldn't have given him any respect? He was truly a good man. 
I mean, perfect in character. The Bible says he was holy, harmless, and undefiled. It also says he was meek and gentle. He was winsome. The sinners would come and gladly have him in their houses to eat. Something about him, holy, harmless, undefiled. He didn't compromise a thing. But there was some winsome character about him. And the power and the good that he did in healing people, what was there not to reverence about Jesus? Obviously, he's on another level than the prophets. Surely, he says, they'll respect him. But they had no respect for him. Look at verse 8. Here's what they did to him. It says, and they took him and killed him. And look at the last thing. They just cast him out of the vineyard. So to kill somebody and cast their body out in the field without a burial was about the most humiliating and lack of respect thing that you could do to a human being back then. Just a show of contempt. And I'm saying that's where the world is today. So they have no respect for our Lord, His majesty, and His word. They don't. Their attitude is this. The world is becoming more and more this way. We will not have this man to reign over us. They have no respect for the Lord. And yet, even still, God continues to send forth His word everywhere. Everywhere His word is still going forth through His servants. Why? Because that's the point we're talking about. God is gracious and long-suffering, isn't He? I mean, it says this in Peter, the Lord is not slack concerning His promise. And the promise is that He's going to one day destroy this earth again because of sin. And it seems like, well, when's He going to do it? When's He coming back like He said? He says, well, He's not slack concerning that promise as some men count slackness, but He's long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's the way God is. His Word's still going forth. The fourth thing we see here is that man is rebellious. And that's in verse 7. Look what it says. But those husbandmen said amongst themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance shall be ours. Come, let us kill him. That's identical language. I mean identical if you go back to Genesis of what Joseph's brothers used when Jacob sent him to them. Come, let's kill him. Let us kill him. And what was the reason that Joseph's brothers killed him? What was the reason? The same reason these guys are killing Jesus. What does the Bible tell us? Out of envy, out of jealousy. Even Pilate said he knew that was the reason. Not because they had a just claim against his life, because they were envious. God in his long suffering sent Jesus to his chosen people. John 1.11 says he came unto his own, the Jews. And his own, it says, received him not. God's own people rejected God's son and killed him. And they not only that, they hated him. Yeah. John 3 says this, 19 to 20 says, Light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. For everyone that does evil hates the light, neither comes to the light lest his deeds be reproved. So here's the thing that these tenets seem to have forgotten. And here's the question that we have to ask ourselves. Here's the question. Whose vineyard is it? Because these guys are acting like this vineyard is theirs, aren't they? That's how they're acting. And they don't have to be accountable to anybody, including the owner or his son. 
So they just want to take the profits, enjoy the benefits of the crop without giving anything back to the owner, without giving him any of his dues. And how many times are we guilty of enjoying the goodness of God, all his blessings and his generosity without being willing to submit to his loving reign? And what happens? We become lords of our own little world, don't we? Many times we do that. So we treat God like these men. He seems like he's far off. It isn't concerned about our affairs or if we give him what is due. That's the way it seems sometimes. And we think God is just an absentee landlord in our lives. So the prodigal did what? He asked for his inheritance. And the father didn't argue with him. He didn't protest. He didn't refuse. He kind of seemed weak, didn't he? Gave the guy everything that was his. Here it is. But he knew that one day that son was going to come to a day of reckoning, didn't he? He knew that was going to happen. So listen, God is not weak. He's not unable to call men into account. And that brings me to the next point. And that is, the fifth point is that God is just. Look what it says in verse 9. He says, what shall therefore the Lord of the vineyard do? He says, he will come and destroy the husbandman and will give the vineyard unto others. So we talked about what is God like? He's generous. He's long-suffering. But he is not eternally long-suffering, is he? His patience one day will run out. Proverbs 29.1 says, He that being often reproved hardens his neck shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. That is what happens sometimes. So it's foolish for us to think that one day God will not call us all into account. We're all going to have to give an account for what he's done with our time, our resources, and our devotion to God. And the rich man in Luke 12, he found that out, didn't he? So he thought he was the Lord, like I said, he thought he was the Lord of his own little world. All of his goods that he had were just his to dispose of how he wished. And he found out differently, didn't he? He's thinking, man, all I got to do is build bigger barns rather than give any away. And he's thinking, I'm set for life. No worries. Sit back, take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But the Bible says this in Luke 12, God said unto him, you fool. This night thy soul shall be required of you, and when and then who shall those things be which you have provided? And the religious leaders in Jerusalem were just as big of fools. They thought they could just destroy Jesus, just destroy this one man, and they could have their way. Everything was theirs. Have their power, have everything they want. Come, let us kill him, they said, and the inheritance will be ours. Oh, no. How's that going to work? And that's Psalm 2. Guys know what Psalm 2 says? It says, The heathen rage and the people plot a vain thing. The kings of the earth, they take their stand against the Lord. And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cord from us. In other words, all the rulers, all the people of the earth, they gather together and they say, God is not going to reign over us. We're not going to submit to him. We're going to cast off his rule over us. And like I said earlier, that is the way the world is headed. I just saw this today. Australia. They just did a census in Australia. So in 1966, when they did a census in Australia, 88% of the Australians were Christians. 1966. 
By 1991, it was down to 74% were Christians. In 2016, 52% now say they're Christians. So it went from almost 90% down to 50%. Almost in half of that country now say they're Christians. And what is growing is the number of people that now are saying, we have no religion we want God and not in our lives at all. We have no religion. In 2006, 19%, basically 20% of the people said that then. Ten years later, in 2016, 30% now say that. And it's rising. Not that they go to some church or they have, no, we have no religion. No God's going to rule over us. And you know what's the major determining factor on who says they have no religion? Age. People 65 and over, they're still up in that 88% category. But the people that are 18 to 34 years old, 40% of them say we have no religion in Australia. And that's just a trend that's growing everywhere. No religion or liberal Christianity, which is just as good as no religion. That's what's happening. That's the darkness that's taken over this world, whether you want to hear it or not. That's what's happening. And it's happening right here. People don't believe the Bible is true. And what is God's response? What was his response to all that in Psalm 2? When they said we're going to cast off his bonds. He's not going to put us in bondage with his laws, his rules, his commandments. It says, he that sits in the heavens shall laugh. And the Lord shall have them in derision. And then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. And so God laughs at that. That sounds cruel, doesn't it? That doesn't sound like our image of God. But he says, look, you can kill the son, but you're still going to have to deal with the father. And you're going to have to deal with the son after he's resurrected and comes back. And on the day of judgment, you're not going to just get rid of him. So I'm saying God is just. And listen, this parable that Jesus told these men, it should have brought them to repentance. So they knew who he was. They knew who Jesus was. That's why he accused them of blaspheming the Holy Spirit back in Mark 3. So they were not ignorant of who he was or who the power was that was operating through him. Now Paul, he said he blasphemed, but he did it ignorantly in unbelief. He really didn't know. But the thing is, the reason they were said, you've blasphemed the Holy Spirit, was because Jesus said, you know who I am. You know who's operating through me. There's no forgiveness for that. That's when you've committed the unpardonable sin. But there's no ignorance here. Like we read, remember verse 12, look back at that. They knew that He was talking to them. And they sought to lay hold on Him, but feared the people, for they knew that he had spoken the parable against them. And what's he doing to these guys? He's exposing the thoughts and intents of their hearts. They should have and they could have repented, couldn't they? But it says their hearts were hardened. Because listen, compare their response to this parable of Jesus to King David. When David was confronted by Nathan the prophet, what did Nathan the prophet do? 
He used a parable, just like here. And what did the parable Nathan spoke do? It exposed David's heart and his intentions, didn't it? But what was David's response? His response was, I'm going to kill this prophet sent from God. I'm going to shut him up and get him off my back. No, what is his response? David cried out, I have sinned against the Lord. And then you got Psalm 51. Deep repentance took place there. And that's what could have happened here. And so we just have to remember God is long-suffering and gracious, isn't He? And we can praise God for that. Like I said earlier, if we repent, He'll forgive us. But if we resist His pleadings, if He's dealing with you about a sin in your life, and we just keep going on and on and on in that sin, walk in our own ways, so to speak, there will be a day of reckoning. Isn't that what we have here in this parable? I mean, I'm not putting words in there. I'm not making something up in the Bible. We have to take it all in. We can't just say, oh, I want to know God is love and God is gracious. Uh-uh. you got a false God then. Because God is also just. And God is long-suffering. But like I said, His long-suffering will come to an end at some time. And we don't want to be the ones to find that out because we refuse to hear His Word. It doesn't matter that I'm saying it. We're looking at His Bible. Hopefully I'm saying what the Bible says. R.C. Sproul, he taught this seminary class. And in his class, I took a lot of classes like this. They'll give you a syllabus and your papers are due this, this, and this day. And they let you know ahead of time. So he had, he had three papers due in this class he taught. Told him when they would be due. The exact date. you got plenty of time to work on that stuff if you budget your times. No problem. Told them when they were due. Everybody said they understood. And he says, here's the penalty. If you are late on your paper, it's going to be due this day by 2 o'clock. And if it comes after that, you get a zero. Okay, Professor Sprawl, we understand all that. So the first paper that was due, he had 250 students. 200 of them came in time, on time. 50 of them were late. Those 50 people, they come and they're begging and pleading. Oh, we didn't mean to, Dr. Sproul, please, da 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 He says, okay, okay, okay. I'll give you a week to get those papers in. Oh, thank you, Dr. Sproul. You're the best professor on the thing. And on and on and on they went. Second paper comes around. 150 come in on time. 100 are late. Same scenario. Except this time he says, I'll give you three days. Three days. Oh, thank you, Dr. Sproul. Thank you. <laughs> we love you. You're so good. The third time. So it's going down. First time, 200 were on time, 150 on time the second time. Third time, he got a 100 on time. And the third time, 150 are late. And so what does he say? He says, I'm going to tell you, everybody that's late, all 150 of you, you get a zero. And you know what the response of the class was? Some of them are yelling out, that's unfair. That's unfair. So he asked one of them, he said, do you want justice? One of them that was saying, crying out, it was unfair. And he says, yes. And Dr. Sprawl remembered his second paper was late. And he says, weren't you late on your last paper? And the guy says, yes. And he says, okay, you get a zero on that one too. <laughs> and then he asked the class, he says, does anybody else want justice? And they got the point. So what's the point for us? 
point is we need to remember God is forgiving. He's gracious and he's long-suffering and patient, but he's also just. And there's a day his patience will run out. And that's just a word to the wise. You're continuing in known sin. You're playing with fire. You may still be living, and he can just pull his Holy Spirit away from you and say, I'll never convict you again. I've met people like that. Backsliders are usually the most blasphemous people because they don't care. And they'll even say, I, I know I shouldn't be doing it. I can't repent. You never want to have that happen to you. That isn't the end of the story, is it? Because we have verses 10 and 11. Look what it says. Jesus says, have you not read this scripture that the stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner? He says, this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And who's the stone? It's Jesus, the one that these builders, the Pharisees, the religious leaders had rejected. They thought they had destroyed him on the cross in what he became the cornerstone, the chief stone, the main stone in God's new temple. The resurrection is sure. And it's the Lord's doing, isn't it? And listen, for those of us that have committed our lives and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is marvelous. Isn't that what it says there? Oh, it is marvelous. God's plan of salvation, His plan of salvation is something that we as Gentiles can rejoice in and admire because it tells us in Romans 11 that through that temporary fall of Israel, God had mercy on us. He said He put them all in Israel in unbelief, even though there was always that remnant, but in essence in all of them unbelief so that He can have mercy on all. And aren't we glad about that? Or we would have known no mercy because it says salvation is of the Jews. But listen what Paul said in Romans 11. He said, for God has concluded them all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all. And he goes on to say, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways are past finding out. And the wisdom and knowledge of God has provided us with the salvation we could have never thought up, could we? His wisdom is beyond us, but praise God he did. Amen? So what have we seen what God is like? We've seen he's generous, long-suffering, and also just. And he also graciously provided His Son to us who we in no way deserved. Gave us mercy we in no way deserved at all. And through Jesus, that foundation, that cornerstone, He's provided a sure salvation for all of us, hasn't He? Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. And Father, I just ask that You'll give us all the full knowledge and appreciation for who You are. Your generosity, Lord, your long-suffering with us, despite our rebellion in times and in the past, that you still, Lord, sent your Son, your only Son. Send Him to be a sacrifice for us sinners that at the time He did that, we hated you, but yet you and your love and your mercy looked down and sent Him to die on our behalf, to take the punishment that was due us, Lord. And if we'll just put our trust in you, and continue to walk with you, Lord, you'll give us that eternal life that you've already given us and you'll manifest it in the end. 
that day. You'll look at us and say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joys of the Lord. And we thank you, Lord, and praise you for the marvelous work that you've done in our lives. And we do that in Jesus' name. Amen.